In previous seasons, we opened each show reviewing cases of girls who are currently missing that we call the Aisha Alert. In our third season, we've decided to switch some things around. We will no longer be adding the Aisha Alerts into the shows, but will continue to post new cases of missing black girls on our social media each week. We encourage you to pay close attention to our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram so that you can help us help the families who are still seeking answers and long for their loved ones' safe return. You are listening to Season 3 of Black Girl Missing, a podcast that covers stories of black girls who were reported missing when they were under the age of 18. When black girls go missing, their cases are severely underreported in mainstream media. We want to shift the narrative. We invite you to listen, learn, and do whatever you can to help us bring as many girls home as possible. Due to the sensitive and sometimes graphic nature of these cases, we advise you to use caution when listening. Welcome back to Black Girl Missing. I'm Nikki. I'm Asa. FJ is having technical difficulties today. She may join us later in the show. I'm not sure. And we have a guest with us today, and I am so wildly excited. Um, Her name is Miss. We are just going to call her Miss on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. We really appreciate it. Asa? Yes? You want to take it over? Sure. So we're just going to jump right into the interview questions. And we're going to start off with how old were you when you went missing slash were taken? I was 17 years old. Okay. Uh, Do you know if your case was ever mentioned in the media? No, it was not. Wait, wait, wait. Hold up, hold up. You said it was never mentioned in the media at all? That's correct. It was never mentioned in the media. <laughs> I was considered to just be some runaway. So, okay, let me just first say why I'm very annoyed by that. Because we say almost every single episode that that's what happens when a black girl or a black woman goes missing. The police are like, oh, that's a runaway. And they don't go looking for them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. We have also learned over the last couple seasons that unless you come from a family that has like money, resources, connections, things like that, nobody's really like the news isn't looking for missing person cases to talk about. Particularly of us. Right. Particularly of, of black people. And what happens is unless you reach out to the news and say, I have this missing person that I would like to talk about. And hope that there's room for them to talk about you on their broadcast. They're not talking about you. Mm -hmm. And it's just awful. And I'm really sorry that nobody paid attention to that. Yeah. Um, Can you tell us the story of how you were taken? All right. So I actually recently found out I actually ran away from home. Um, I recently found out why I ran away from home in the last two years. Um, I never knew why I was under a lot of stress, um, because when I was 14 years old, uh, as a freshman in high school, somebody attempted to rape me. The police didn't believe me. The school didn't believe me at moments. It felt like my parents didn't believe me, but they ended up believing me, um, Uh, Like I said, just felt like it was me against the world. 
Um, and that took an emotional toll on me. Um, so I was under a lot of stress when I left. Um, I recently was just diagnosed with bipolar disorder with uh, manic episodes. So now it makes sense as to why I left. Um, my episodes caused me to wander. So even as an adult, I would run away from my own house. I ran away and ended up in places like Philadelphia. One time I ended up in Chicago and walked all the way to Wisconsin from Chicago. Um, so when I, yes, and luckily those times nothing happened to me, but when I was 17 and I had an episode due to stress and, you know, it's a chemical imbalance in my brain. Um, I was unmedicated for it because doctors, my parents had me in and out of doctor's offices and um, they kept telling me, I guess in the 90s, um, they weren't really diagnosing children with bipolar disorder. Yeah, so I had right. unmedicated bipolar disorder and I ended up leaving the house because of that. Okay. So you were definitely failed by multiple people, multiple systems, like starting with the mental health care system. Yeah. I personally have experience with that myself and I mm. understand how frustrating that is. Yeah. The thing that's like really, really getting to me is the school doing absolutely nothing about an attempted rape or even mm -hmm. like really looking into it. Right. And the police like, interrogated me. And at the end of the interrogation, they told me that if they were going to press charges on the young man who happened to be 18 years old, I was 14 at the time, um, they said they would have to charge me with prostitution. Mind you, I was didn't know what prostitution was. They started asking me questions like what track I worked on. I'm like, what's a track? I was a virgin. They were in my face screaming at me, telling me I was going to die of AIDS or be locked up or, you know, and I was a child. I didn't know what was going on. Um, there was video of the attempted rape and everything. And, you know, they didn't believe me. They said that the young man told them that he paid me for sex, which never happened. And even if they said, oh, we maybe we can press charges for statutory rape since he was older, but they would have to charge me with prostitution. That, that is wild. Yes. They wouldn't let my parents in the room with me during the interrogation. And not only did had he tried to attempt to rape me, he had attempted to rape one of my best friends at the time, and then left a note in my locker, like, ha ha, I couldn't get to you, so I got your friend. And she was also at the police station as well. Oh. If I'm not mistaken, isn't it like a law that if police are speaking to someone who's under 18, their parents are supposed to be present? I'm well, pretty sure it, it is. Happen. It did not happen. Oh I my God. A lawyer. I was not offered my parents. I was just a young girl in an interrogation room for hours. And like, that's a common thing where victims are treated as suspects. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just, like, I don't have the words. It makes me so angry. Even victims who aren't living are somehow like put on trial for their own demise. And it's like, right. Yes. What? what? None of it makes sense. At all. Can I, because we talk about this quite frequently on the show, I just want to ask, um, how tall were you in high school? Oh, I've been kind of the same height my whole life. So I was, I'm around 5'5 five five now. 
So around that ballpark, maybe between five three and five five. Okay. I ask because a lot of times the way that black girls are treated when something happens has a lot to do with how they look, their size, their color, their height, their weight. Um, if their hair is short or long, um, the clothes they wear, like everything, how they speak, everything. Yeah. Everything. I looked everything when I was 14, 17, I looked like a child. Yeah. And like to us all like, young black kids look like children but when like you know people that are not within our community particularly white people look at young black children they don't see children yes not at all so um i know that you were eventually trafficked um Mm -hmm. later on can you tell us how you got to that point and how that kind of developed after you ran away all right, so you know how they say that within the 40, first 48 hours is pretty crucial. Um, right. So within the first 24 hours, um, I actually ended up at some house party. Um, there was an older gentleman who I had known from the neighborhood. One day walking home from school, he stopped me and we started talking. You know, I was young and dumb. Um, so when I ran away, not being in my right mind, I contacted this older gentleman who was about in his thirties. Um, he took me to a house party where I was drugged and raped multiple times. Um, from that house party, two gentlemen took me to a hotel room. Um, they had guns, um, where I was raped some more. And, um, the next day, the gentleman who was the guy I knew, he came to pick me up and was like, oh, I'm going to take you somewhere safe. We get in his car and he takes me to a parking lot where a gentleman in, I think he had like a Mercedes Benz or something or a Cadillac, one of those classic pimp cars hops out Mm -hmm. in a mink coat. Um, I see them exchange money And then I'm told to get out of the car and go with this guy. Again, I don't know who has guns, who doesn't have guns. You know, I'm scared. Um, And that gentleman ended up being a gorilla pimp. um, And he began to pimp me in Washington, D.C. Within those 48 hours, I was scared to death. Um, Another pimp a girl from another pimp approached me and was like, oh, you have a gorilla pimp. He's known for making girls disappear. The only way that you can get away from him is to choose another pimp. Um, Would you mind explaining to our listeners what a gorilla pimp is? A gorilla pimp is somebody who is physically abusive, um, usually to their, uh, their girls. Um, Yeah. Anywhere from beatings to, gun violence to, um, you know, you name it. Gorilla pimps are pretty much the worst type of pimp there is. Mm, Okay. Thanks for that explanation. Um, So after like the initial trafficking, how long were you stuck and and kind of trapped in that 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 time in your life? Yeah. I was trapped for about a year and a half. Actually, within those 40, 48 hours, I was brought to Miami, Florida um, and trafficked there. Um, I was there for a year and a half until luckily I had another episode. 
obviously because I was stressed out. And that episode caused me to have the strength and not really have up those, those fears and things like that. And I stepped mm-hmm. to my pimp and I was like, I'm leaving. And um, he was also another gorilla pimp. I had actually watched him beat some of his girls. And I don't know, I believe in God. I think God had stepped in at that point. And um, I was able to walk away from that situation. I wandered the beach for the first day. And then finally I started coming back to reality because you know I was brainwashed as well. So I had to come out of that fog of being brainwashed come out of the fog of having an episode. I hopped on a bus to Atlanta, Georgia, and never looked back. Wow. Um, With $100 in my pocket. (laughs) That. And no clothes on my back. (laughs) Wow. Do you know if anybody from back home was actively looking for you? Uh, My parents were actively looking for me. I was actually on the missing and exploited persons list. Um, I actually, it's funny. I had spoke with a friend, um, right after I kind of got out of the life and they were like, Oh, there's a poster of you in the liquor store. Um, and then when I moved to Georgia and kind of restarted my life one day, about a year after I got out of the life, I'm in the library and it's tax season. And somebody was like, yo, your face is everywhere. I was like, what are you talking about? I go pick up the tax form. My face is on the back of it hundreds and hundreds of tax forms with my picture on it saying that I'm a missing person in Georgia. So wow. that means I don't know if somebody spotted me in Georgia or what happened that made them put that out. But I was so traumatized about that experience because I'm trying to restart my life. People don't know I was a past missing person. They knew me as an artist. And um, yeah, I immediately went to the IRS and said, you guys have to remove my poster. Okay. Do you know if your traffickers and pimps were ever charged or convicted? No. Mm-mm. You don't know or they weren't? I, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. It's not something that I personally pursued, A, mm-hmm. because, you know, I was afraid for a long time about people coming after me. Um, but also... I forgot a lot of the details. I have PTSD. So with PTSD, your brain kind of submerges some of those details. And Mm -hmm. then on top of that, I never knew their real names. You know, I've just gotten Mm -hmm. to the point 15, 16 years later of, um, I just recently attempted to press charges against a police officer or a U.S. Marshal, I believe he was, who had assaulted me, taking me from a courthouse to his home and assaulted me. Um, and I recently tried to press charges on him. Um, I heard back from the detective recently that that case is going to be swept under the rug. I am so, so sorry. Yeah. Thank you. It's, I, yeah. Just a second. It's a lot to process. Like I, it's happened to you and like, I can't even imagine it, but like, you know, hearing all this for all these details for the first time, it's a lot to process. Yes. Like we, we know this happens, but you know, to actually speak to someone that it's happened and is happening to, mm-hmm. it's different. Yeah. Yeah. For okay. some cases that we go over when we think about 
the interactions that families are having with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that they're not helpful. They just oh, are not helpful. They're never helpful. They don't solve any crimes. They don't really, you know, investigate. They don't, there's nothing, none of that. There yeah. is no hero at the end of, you know, calling 911 or calling the police department. So what I want to ask is like, what is your relationship or what is your family's relationship with um, the police? Like, did they, did they oh, feel like. <laughs> It's funny because I actually was just talking to my mother today about law enforcement um, and how um, I had been arrested a lot of times during my trafficking, um, including when I was underage. I've never been to juvenile detention hall. I was always put in jail as an adult. They knew who I was most of the time. They knew that I was on the missing exploited persons list. They did nothing. Only one time did an officer call my parents. That was after I was 18. And it was because I lied about his name and because he was being a meanie. He was like, oh, you're not going to tell me your name. I'm going to call your parents. You know, and it was it wasn't nobody had ever asked me the whole year and a half of being trafficked. Nobody ever asked me if I was okay. Nobody ever asked me if I was being trafficked. I looked like a little girl. I was always put in adult jail. Um, it was it was bad. I I never had a good relationship with the police. They never took me seriously. Like, how do you know I'm a missing exploited person and a teenager and not do anything? Why do you have me in adult jail? I was continuously arrested. And the good I have some good news though. Mm-hmm. I do have some good news. Um, I just recently, over the last two years, I've been in the process of expungement. Mm-hmm. I found a pro bono lawyer oh. and my record has officially been expunged. I and, am yeah, so, I'm so happy, happy for you. you. Eight, cases, so... eight cases, including a bench warrant that they found. Oh, Jesus. So I'm so happy for now. You. I can travel the world. My dreams of adoption can come through, can come true. Um, I just feel so free and I'm very grateful to that pro bono lawyer, um, who helped me out. He really stuck to it. And he actually told me in the beginning, he said, look, there's a lot of laws in Miami that may only allow you to expunge one case and it won't be a conviction. Um, and he managed to expunge all eight cases, including convictions and including that bench warrant. That is fantastic. Yes. Oh wow! Yeah. I am and so happy for you. Happened, like within the last two weeks. Wow! And that's I've a real wait. For yes, years, fifteen years since I've been out of the life. That's a huge that's... weight lifted off. Yeah, yeah. Because I've like I I was never trafficked or anything like that, but I I do have a record from when I was you know mm-hmm. a lot younger, and mm-hmm. that shit walks around with you. It yes. really yeah. does. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how much time has passed. It doesn't matter what you do. You can be you know, you could be like the mirror image of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. yes. and somebody's going to say, okay, we need to do a background check. Yeah. And then as soon mm-hmm. as they do, they're like, well, back here in 1998, you did this thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Who gives a shit? Having multiple cases that are all um, sexually related prostitution cases. Like mm-hmm. they, I could have murdered somebody and would have been in the same position, you know, like, right. But it, but see, you having um, a record that to them it looks like she was a sex worker and she was really young. Mm-hmm. So 
all of that, like that there's just a ball of judgment that just mm-hmm. hangs over you yeah. no matter where you go, no matter what you do. It doesn't matter that you were victimized. They don't give a damn. Mm-hmm. I, was actually, I was actually fired from a job one time because of my record. I believe it. I yeah. was at a restaurant. One day I come into the restaurant and the managers like pulled me to the side and he started making up all these excuses as to why he fired was firing me. Like, Oh, you were on your phone two days ago. Or I was like, no, I wasn't. <laughs> and he was like, Oh, well this, that, and there. I was like, no, I wasn't. And then finally he was like, I just don't think this is a good fit. So I go next door to the Starbucks, just trying to collect my thoughts. And I was crying. And one of my coworkers who's, who was such a sweetheart, she came over and she was like, I just want you to know that the manager has your mugshot pulled up on the computer and is showing everybody. I literally should have pressed charges against that manager because I was underage, because I was trafficked, and you have no business putting my personal information out there and you can even reveal that to me. You know, but I just, at the time, I wasn't going through therapy. My PTSD was very bad. So even the mention of my past would mm-hmm. send me into weeks and months of depression. For sure. Right. And oh, like in that. the moment of all that happening, like pressing charges is like the the last thing you're worried about. You're like, how I need another job. How am I going to take care of myself? Yeah. Like, yeah. Especially considering the relationship that you have with law enforcement. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. no, I'm not going to go to y'all because fuck y'all. Like, look yeah, how you yeah. treated me anyway. <laughs> like, there's mm-hmm. no recourse. There is like, there's no instruction manual that says when somebody screws you over, you know, three times, mm-hmm. what am I supposed to do? You yeah, don't know. Right. And the way to do that, like there is an answer, but like, you got to have money. You got to have mm-hmm. a re- money for a retainer to go to yeah. an attorney and say, I want to file a civil suit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who yeah. the hell has money mm-hmm. for that? I was told that by a lawyer recently after when I decided I wanted to press charges on that um, U.S. Marshal 15 years later, he said, if he, if I had come forward within six months of it happening, I could have sued the whole state of D.C., the whole District of Columbia. But nobody tells you that. It, but who all? has done that? We're talking about a high-ranking member of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. He had a desk. He had a business card. He was... He told me, if you ever get arrested again, you tell them that you're my niece and I'll get you off. So somebody with that power, why would I report them to law enforcement? He had Mm -hmm. two of his minions come get me and threaten me before even bringing me to him. So Mm -hmm. obviously he worked with other people and it it gets worse. When he brought me to his house, he took me to his basement and there were pictures. He took a picture of my breasts. And then put it on a wall that was covered with 20 to 50 young looking girls. So this is somebody who sits around in his office all day and looks for young looking girls who are in the D.C., um, you know, uh, the D.C. jail, Mm -hmm. probably, you know, young prostitutes and things like that and was exploiting them. And that that area is very... um... That area is rough. Like the area mm-hmm. around DC jail yes. is not, you know, it's rough. And there's rough. a lot of kids on the street that don't have anywhere to go. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there's I entire just, families on the street over there. And yeah. I'm just automatically thinking of that time a couple of years ago when people were making noise about so many young black girls within DC and the surrounding oh, areas okay. going missing mm-hmm. and yep. like putting two and two together with this guy. And it's, yeah, 
that's why like for years i the thing that bothered me the most and the reason that i finally came forward about that case is because i don't know what happened to those girls who were on his wall yeah i don't know mm-hmm. if they're buried in the man's backyard and i was talking to a friend of mine who's actually used to be um in the fbi um and i was telling him like i need to report this and he was like honestly they're probably never going to do anything um but luckily an office a detective and um i called the missing exploited persons um and told them what was going on and they referred me to somebody who referred me to a detective um that detective interviewed me he did his best we went back to the courthouse and tried to figure out where that man's office was he he did his best. I will say mm-hmm. that he was, he actually, I won't say he changed my mind about law enforcement, but he gave me a little bit more hope. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I got a call because I lived in another state than where the incident happened. They wanted me to go over to FBI headquarters and identify some pictures. Um, and I don't believe in sending a black man to the jail just because, because the officer was a black gentleman. Um, I don't believe in just, I don't believe in sending anybody to jail just because. So I wasn't able to, with certainty, identify the gentleman. Okay. And that's why the case ended up getting closed. Gotcha. So not closed, but they pretty much said, unless there's new information that comes about, you know, and who knows yeah wow uh that's yeah that that's a lot yeah it (laughs) is it's a lot and i mean you live through this um, yeah so us just hearing it and it being very heavy i know that it's something that's really complicated to grapple with um i do want to ask another question i keep coming up with questions as you're talking i'm sorry (laughs) Uh, Um, now I know that some people who have bipolar disorder, they remember their psychosis. Like they remember what was happening. Do you remember? Yes, I do remember my psychosis. You do? Yes. Did you know, now I know you said that at first, you know, you, you weren't diagnosed. So you didn't know that you had bipolar disorder. Once you were diagnosed and you had a, a, an episode of psychosis where, something you know negative is happening to you are you knowing like are you conscious of the fact that it's because you're unmedicated or are you just not really sure um i guess yes um like i said thankfully outside when i was 17 nothing negative has really happened to me during psychosis right um except for me putting myself in danger by wandering around um, but it's, it's a weird place to be having a manic episode. Um, I'm very lucid. Mm-hmm. I actually go through periods when I'm, when I'm having a manic episode, I don't sleep. The longest period of time I haven't slept was for two weeks. Um, wow. I've had to be hospitalized a couple of times because of that. And they give you medication to kind of help you go to sleep and bring down the psychosis. Uh, but I do remember everything. I'm just not able to think with a clear enough mind, par- partially due to the manic episode and then partially due to the lack of sleep. Your brain starts misfiring. Yeah. Um, 
So I start feeling like, you know, people can hear my thoughts. I don't think I can hear people's thoughts and I don't hear voices, but I think people can hear my thoughts and I feel unsafe and um, I kind of get my PTSD starts kicking in and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a a weird place to be. And um, I still remember the episode I had before I ran away from home. I just remember being on the floor and crying, just bawling and feeling like, I didn't know what to do. Um, mm-hmm. Also feeling like that's the closest I've ever been to suicide, though I don't, I'm not a suicidal person at all. Mm-hmm. But if I was, I probably would have attempted to take my life that night. Um, mm-hmm. But because I'm not suicidal, you know, I I just left. Mm-hmm. See, I know you said your parents um, attempted to get you help. Do you also yeah. feel that? outside of that they were supportive um I know it's hard to be understanding because a lot of people just don't especially in the 90s just didn't know mm-hmm. what this was and what it looked like but do you feel like they were a safe space for you I didn't feel like that at the time no um I felt like I had nobody to talk to nobody to turn to I felt like my parents were against me because um, like I said, I didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, now that I'm older, I understand that they were just trying to get me help. So there were times that I was hospital. They put me in the hospital. Um, I was in and out of doctor's offices, you know, throughout my whole childhood, just trying to figure out what was going on with me. Cause I would have those deep moments of depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only thing I was diagnosed with was ADHD. Um, which I still have, but they could not, I had a doctor tell me I was just simply lazy. I had a doctor. Yes. I had a doctor who told me I should start smoking cigarettes when I got of age and that would help my stress. Yes. That Um, I'm very accustomed to doctors not believing that there's a chemical imbalance and just telling you it's a character flaw. But to say, yeah. maybe you should smoke cigarettes, even in the 90s, that was... <laughs> that was just a no-no. What? I can't believe she said that. I still will never forget that. Um, and I was hospitalized, like, after the attempted rape, I was hospitalized um, for a little while. And that was very hard for me because the hospital had men in it. And I was in a weird place like guys would try to hit on me. And I remember one day, like, <laughs> I don't want to say I attempted to attack him, but I kind of did after, he like, you know, like, Hey, let's go take a shower together. And I got so <laughs> triggered that I went to go hit him and mm-hmm. the hospital, instead of, you know, understanding my space, they drunk me and put me in a, mm-hmm. in a room by myself and things like that. So being in yeah. and out of a hospital as a child, it felt like, I felt like I was in jail as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, I really did. I went to, I was pulled from high school, my high school, and put into an alternative school because I'm not going to lie, I started acting out a lot after the attempted rape, um, yeah. you know, because I just felt like, why not? Started skipping school, smoking weed and things like that. And my parents just I, I, my parents are older parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that also made it a little bit more difficult dealing with me 
But I could say now they tried their best. Yeah. You know, I I don't hold any animosity towards my parents. For a long time, mm-hmm. I did. Um, I felt like nobody looked for me and things like that. But when I started reading the report from the missing exploited persons, um, I knew that they had been looking for me. And I can't imagine how hard it was on them for me to be gone. They probably thought that mm-hmm. I was dead. Yeah. Yeah. Before you went missing, were did you have a close relationship with your parents where you disappearing was like alarming for them because you were close or no? No, um, no I wasn't very close with my parents at the time. And I had attempted to run away a couple of times before then. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, they were all probably bipolar episodes, which now I know that's what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this time I just never came home and they weren't able to find me. Because, like, I know it was a bipolar episode because I remember one time I walked around and instead of doing what a normal person who would run away would do, like, get on a bus and go to a destination, Mm -hmm. I just wandered around the neighborhood for hours and the police finally found me. And Mm -hmm. nobody, like, asked me. I don't, I mean, they should have known that I was mentally unwell. Mm-hmm. And that was the reason I was running away. Like law enforcement, I don't know why nobody really picked up that there. I mean, I think my parents picked up that there was something wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they didn't know if I was just acting out or, or what was going on. So, right. Yeah. Since you were able to um, escape the life, what has the process of healing looked like for you? Oh my goodness, a very long road. Um, it's funny, I was watching a show on Netflix the other day called Made. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Um, and I got a little triggered watching it because, you know, she she was seeking all this help and all the resources that she was using. Um, and recently... I've started working with the human trafficking agency in New York, who's given me therapy and other resources. Um, Thankfully, 15 years later, I did not know those resources existed when I was being trafficked. Mm -hmm. Um, There, I didn't, I went through being homeless after being trafficked. I went Mm -hmm. through being in an abusive relationship because my heart was vulnerable. I didn't have to go through any of that. I could have called the, the national um, human trafficking hotline. They would have sent me a ticket to go to somewhere safe. They would have put mm-hmm. a roof over my head. They would have helped me get a GED. They would have helped me get legal help. They would have helped me get jobs. You know, I would have been mm-hmm. getting government assistance. I never had to struggle, but because I didn't know those resources were out there, like back in, this was 2006 when this happened. Mm-hmm. when I went missing. So it was about 2007, 2008 when I got out of the life. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, they didn't have smartphones back then. Right. So yeah. resources weren't readily in your hand. And I would caution mm-hmm. anybody who's going through the life now or maybe has recovered from the life but is still struggling because it is a long struggle, like reach out to the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Yes. Do you happen to like have their number or like I memorize? Can pull it up. 
Yes, I I think that that is a very um, important number. One second here. So their phone number is one eight 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 three seven three seven eight eight eight. Okay. We Thank can you. we can add that in our show notes also so that if anyone needs it, put it in your phone and give mm-hmm. it to people on the street if they need it. Yep. Are there any tips that you would give parents or families or just young girls in general who may find themselves in a similar situation as yours? Yeah, don't trust strangers. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, um, yeah, the the tip, the biggest tip I would give was that reaching out to human trafficking hotline, like if you are, um, you know, in a situation or even if somebody attempts to traffic you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think, you know, for parents, just keep going. If you feel like your child has a a mental disability, Get that in check because they're at such high risk for being trafficked, you know, Mm -hmm. having that. Um, Don't just feel like, oh, my kid's just being bad or just running away. And I think that that's like the major piece that, you know, law enforcement and the news misses that all these Black girls are just, they're just little runaways. They're not, you know, I was in distress. Right. You know, so I think my biggest advice is just, to stop treating us as if we're doing this to ourselves. We're children. Mm-hmm. I was a child. I cannot choose to leave the house with no money and no clothes and just think I'm going to be okay. Why would anybody think that I would be okay? Right. Whew. Outside of the police, how do you think that the mainstream media handles the topic of human trafficking? Horribly. Um, Agreed. <laughs> I think that I don't I think it was around 2017. I know you mentioned it as well. Um, we were a hashtag with all the DC black girls. We were a hashtag. It picked up steam on social media now that we have social media. Um, and a lot of people started coming out in support of girls like me. Um, and then we were forgotten about that hashtag passed and people stopped talking about something that still happens every day. I literally, every day I wake up, I think about the other girls who are out there, the ones that never got out. You know, I was trafficked. When I was in jail, I talked to many girls. I did three months one time for um, a failure to appear to probation, probation violation. Um, obviously I wasn't allowed to go to court by my pimp. I wasn't allowed to go right. to court, so I don't know why I even had that. <laughs> but um I was in there with several other um young girls who were my age. First of all, that's messed up. And because we were all in adult jail. And yeah. the stories I heard, some girls were were snatched off of porches, snatched out of parks. There were some other girls who had their children held against them. 
whether it was a child that they had with the pimp or a child that was their own and those children were held against them and they couldn't leave because they didn't want to leave their child behind. There were some women who had their green cards or paperwork or their parents' paperwork held against them. Families threatened. You know, so, and these are girls, I think a lot of people get it twisted because like I said, you are brainwashed when you're in the life. Um, and you feel like the whole world is against you. The police are against you. Your family might be against you, or it feels like that. The tricks are against you. The public, everybody's a square. They don't get it. They're mm-hmm. against you. Um, so you're you're in this weird place of not trusting anybody, and your mentality starts to change, and you're just like, well, I guess all I can ever be is a prostitute, and nobody gets it, and this is just my life now. Um, so a lot of those girls, they end up having children in the life who some of them become pimps, some of them become, you know, next generation um, prostitutes that are born into the life. Um, some girls get hooked on drugs. Thankfully, the only drug I ever got hooked on was nicotine. And I'm still um, trying to get rid of that Um that addiction, but I'm thankful because some girls are hooked on heroin, cocaine, Mm -hmm. um, different drugs like that. And I never, God must've had his hand on me, you know? Right. Right. So So, this is, is, Nikki, did you have any more questions? You're echoing. Oh, crap. Hold on. Am I still echoing? Is that better? You're good. Can you, okay. Did you have any more questions? I do. <laughs> I knew it. Um, I, I, I Initially, I didn't. But as we've been talking, <laughs> I do. Um, I'm going to just, like, give you a minute to... Okay, sorry. Yeah. No, oh, don't, no. Don't apologize. No, you're fine. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is a lot. I, like, yeah. I get it. And we're strangers. You don't know us, you know? Right. Um, Again, I just want to thank you for, you know, giving us the opportunity to listen to your story from your own mouth. Like, it's one thing to like, one thing I've noticed is sometimes like if you can read people's stories in like magazines and stuff, but Mm -hmm. we don't know who edited that. We don't know how much Mm -hmm. of what we're reading is actually out that person's mouth. Um, We don't know how much of it is paraphrased or if the writer, you know, went in and they did an interview and they're not necessarily like reporting it back verbatim. We don't really know. So like listening to your voice and like seeing you and hearing you tell your story, like it's very moving. It's touching. I'm so glad that you survived all of this. I know that healing healing is not linear. Like I know that you're going to have days where you're up and down or whatever, but you're here and you're present and you're in your body and you know yourself and you know who you are, you know, your worth. That's amazing. Um, That's not the question I wanted to ask. I just went on my attention. I'm sorry. That's just very me. I will do that. Um, (laughs) What I wanted to ask is what does your future look like for you? Oh, wow. Um, It's looking bright. Um, I'm actually in a very good place in life. Um, like I said, I, I officially got diagnosed with bipolar disorder two years ago after my last episode. And I've been taking medication every day. And life have, and they finally took my ADHD, adult ADHD seriously as well. So I'm taking medication for that as well. Um, so life is looking good. I haven't had any mental disrupt, disruptions in my life 
uh, recently. I just moved into a new place and have this new independence, an amazing new puppy that is like my <laughs> therapy dog. Um, and like I said, I'm working with the human trafficking organization uh, in New York that is giving me once a week therapy. I have a caseworker. Um, life is looking bright and the great news is I finally found a way to share my story. Um, and that is through an album that I wrote. It's a 19 track hip hop poetic album. Um, and it talks about before, during, and after being trafficked as well as a couple tracks dedicated to other, uh, human trafficking victims. So I'm in the process of recording the album and I hope to release my first music video before the year is out. And, you know, I'm just, I'm financing this all by myself because I believe that it's that important. It's not about the money at all. It's about getting the message out there. Mm. That's super exciting. So, yeah. I'm so proud of you for doing that. Absolutely. It's been so, it's, I've, I've done a lot of healing through it. Like it was funny the other day I had, uh, a couple weeks ago, I had a really rough day at my job and I have a song called Survivor and I started playing it on repeat just to remind myself like where I came from and where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And wow. we're going to, we'll play a snippet of the song that you, that you did share with us. I think it's called Rise. Let me go look at it again. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I think it's Rise, right? Yes. <laughs> I closed the tab. I'm sorry. (laughs) I was trying to get back to it. Um, But yes, the track is called Rise and we will play that for our listeners so that they can uh, get a little taste of what you have to offer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know you said that you are self-funding all of this. Yes. Mm -hmm. How can people help you do that? Um, I do have a GoFundMe set up on my Instagram page. Um, You know, every little bit helps with the recording process and making the videos um and i you know appreciate all help um but it's there it's available i've had you know a couple of people donate which i'm super grateful for and regardless of if this gets funded by gofundme i'm in the midst of applying to grants and things like that so if anybody knows of any grants that you know i might uh qualify for feel free to contact me about that Speaking of contacting you, for any of our listeners that do want to reach out and get in touch with you, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me at Missing Black Girl at, on Instagram or uh, email me at missingblackgirl at gmail.com. Awesome. We will definitely be putting that and your GoFundMe in our show notes. Thank you. Um, and we'll get this out as soon as possible so that there's no like lag time. <laughs> no. We, can get, we can get this going for you. We'll help you get this going for you a little bit, ramp you up a little bit. But honestly, I want to thank you so much, not just for, for speaking to us today, but for the work you're doing for mm-hmm. other victims yeah. of human trafficking. Because I know like having gone through that and still going through the process of healing, mm-hmm. sometimes your thought, you don't have the, the mental bandwidth to not just care about yourself, but also care about others. Yeah. And I just think that's so amazing that you are able to do that. Thank you. Yeah. I've been looking for a way to give back since I got out of the life. Like 
my first year out of the life, I was like, oh man, I want to start a, a nonprofit organization. I was a little bit ahead of myself. And it was funny. I actually met with a congressman. I don't remember his name, but this was in Atlanta. <laughs> and he took me seriously and he actually gave me money to get a GED. Um, yeah, I didn't, I ended up not getting my GED until years later, but you know, he was, he was very helpful and he believed in me starting this nonprofit. Um, but maybe one day that will happen for now, you know, this album is my way to reach those who are in distress to, to let them know that somebody understands you. And that's the biggest key point is that we're not felt, we don't feel as if people understand. Um, and that can be the hardest part. So I want to be able to reach those people who are either still in the life or may have been out of the life. Like I said, I've been out of life for 15 years now, 15, 16 years, and I'm just now finding my healing. So it's just as pertinent as being in the life, but also to bring awareness to those people who you know, people don't talk about human trafficking, really. Mm-mm. Not and not in a that, real way. way. Right. Yeah, not in a real There's... way. It's a, it's a taboo topic mm-hmm. that is swept under the rug a lot. You or know, it's... I've tried to navigate the dating world and open up to some people. Mm. And I have been um, shut down quite a few times because of my past. <sighs> I can, I I can, can, see, I can that. see that. Yeah. And it's yeah, when when they when the subject of human trafficking comes up a lot of people just they have this kind of vision in their mind of like the boogeyman and little children or like russian girls in shipping mm-hmm. containers like yeah. they don't yeah so when we started this podcast and people would ask me like well what is your podcast about like that's weird and i'm like how is it weird mm-hmm. they're like black girls and i'm like uh, yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> I'm like they're right there on your block. Like you have mm-hmm. no idea because you don't know what to look for. It's because the media helps push this idea that human trafficking is about, you know, some small woman coming from Thailand or you know something. Right, like, yeah. and, and that is a real thing it's that thing. does happen, and it's mm-hmm. awful. But it's also happening in our backyards, and it, mm-hmm. it hurts my heart to know that we're likely walking past you know, trafficking survivors daily. Yeah. Right. And you know, the messed up part about it is one of the questions that I think a lot of human trafficking victims get asked and a lot of people have for them is why didn't you just leave? Why didn't you just walk away? You weren't, you know, somebody wasn't holding a gun to your head the whole time you were being trafficked. And like I said, you have those girls who are, whose families are threatened, whose, um, you know, they're, you're scared to death, you're brainwashed, you know, and pimps watch you and other mm-hmm. pimps, like it's a whole community of pimps. So I remember getting chased through the streets of Miami when I left the pimp one time um, and nobody did anything. I'm just running through traffic and everything. All these pimps were chasing me. Um, so I was, that's why I had to leave the whole state of Miami when I ended, when I stopped being trafficked, cause I was afraid for my life. Well, one I thing ha- I, I think people miss out on with that is it's a network, right? Mm-hmm. It's a network. Absolutely. And if, if, if person A's, you know, if his girl is running away and she gets away, we let her get away. She is now creating 
vulnerability in the network chain. Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. I don't want my girls thinking that they can do what his girl is doing. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned on another episode, I think it was like last season, about how, you know, pimps have corner boys. They are always watching you. Even if he's not there, there's some dude on a corner in a car there's another guy down there by the 7-Eleven. There's another dude by that bus stop. He looks like he's waiting for the bus, but no, he's watching you. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that people realize how intricate this system really is. Right. And, and speaking to the people that just don't understand, mm-hmm. for anyone that's um, who has family, friends, or comes into contact with someone who is a trafficking survivor, how do you feel that they can best support them or at least just not be an asshole? That's a tough one. Um, Because like I said, when the mentality of somebody who is being trafficked and has been trafficked for a while is a very untrusting mentality, um, we don't really trust anybody who hasn't been in the situation that we've been in. Um, so it's very hard to reach those people. And that's why I think it's been on my heart and it's so important for me to utilize my experience to help other people because there's not a lot of people who can really reach those people. Um, luckily, like for instance, I had a a regular therapist. She was a trauma therapist. Um, but I felt like she didn't understand me. She didn't get it. Um, so I moved on to working with a therapist at a human trafficking organization. I felt a lot, I feel a lot more understood because I'm like, oh, you're used to working with people like me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, you know, not to stereotype them um, would be number one. Like there's mm-hmm. videos on YouTube. I was watching some videos the other day. Don't ask me how I got to them. <laughs> but it's people just recording the prostitutes laughing at them or talking about, oh, did you see her make that sale and stuff like that. And a lot of these, I'm looking at the faces of these girls and a lot of them look like they were my age, 17, 16 years old, you know, just on the street and nobody's doing anything to help. I think it really comes down to not the general public. Well, oh, I I forgot to mention Within those first 48 hours of being trafficked, when I was, I was actually trafficked in D.C. at first, where I had an APB out on me, an all points bulletin, I believe, out on me in those first 48 hours. Um, I was approached by an organization. I forget the name of the organization. You have to forgive me. Um, They were a human trafficking organization. And instead of asking me if I was okay, which I was terrified for my life, I'm like, how did I end up getting into this? I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get out of it. I have nobody to trust. Um, They offered me condoms and a list of bad tricks. They should have had a list of all the people with active APBs or missing people Mm -hmm. and called the police. Right. And like, I understand their, their motivation, it's harm reduction, but also like, you have to understand, like, not everyone that is doing sex work is doing it of their own volition. So you have to, you you have to factor that into everyone you come across. Yeah. It's a real thin line. Like, you know, I, I, I believe in, you know, rights for sex workers and things Mm -hmm. like that. Like, 
people have the right to choose what it is they want to do with their lives. But when it comes to children trafficking, like that's where the line is drawn. And I'm actually fearful. Like I believe if, if, and, and, you know, forgive me for saying this. Some people aren't going to agree with what I'm going to say. I don't believe prostitution should be legal. That mm-hmm. opens the door for saying that trafficking is okay. Um, I think the percentage of trafficked women will go up supply and demand. Um, mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, the traffic, the woman who's being trafficked is the one that's going to end up with the record and, mm-hmm. you know, being in harm's way and things like that. So I... I don't believe, I think they need to change the legislation, continue to change the legislations that makes it easier for women who have been trafficked to come forward and get their records expunged. And they have been working on that state to state, um, which is positive. When I first tried to get my record expunged, I told, I was told that those legislations didn't exist. And in the recent years, those have changed. Um, So that's good. And I would, I would say to anybody who wants to get their record expunged, reach out to your local legal aid or reach out to um, the legal aid in the state that you were trafficked. Um, That's where I found my pro bono lawyer. It took a year process for them to find me a lawyer. So you have to be patient. Um, You can also reach out to the National Human Trafficking Hotline and they can provide you with resources such as organization. There are many organizations out there that do have on staff attorneys that will help, that will give legal help. Whew, and they'll even give you a, because uh, I actually spoke with the organization in D.C. when I was about to press charges on the officer and I was offered, you know, an advocate if I wanted an advocate to come with me to the police station um, while I reported it. Um, so that was offered to me as well. That's that's great. And that's progress within the system. But yeah, you know, there's a long way to go. But again, we, I, we want to thank you for not just sharing your story, but also sharing these, these resources that, you know, you don't know about them if you don't know about them. It, yes. <laughs> one of those things. So um, if Nikki, you don't have any more questions, I would like to close out this episode of Black Girl Missing. And once again, um, thank you, because I know this isn't an easy thing to talk about and you've been very open and vulnerable and I can't express my gratitude enough. Absolutely. And you guys are more than welcome to play rise if you like, so people can get a a little taste. Um, I think that it, it kind of goes with the theme of your podcast. So I picked that track. Um, and it's just, it's a call to help for women who are being trafficked. We appreciate it very much. Yeah. And, and we're going to. guys. I appreciate everything that you guys are doing and bringing awareness. We're just. <sighs> we're just three concerned black women. <laughs> really? That's like trying to do something. Anything. It sounds like look- a corny tagline, but it's true. Yeah. Like we talk about this stuff like yeah. outside of the podcast. Yeah. Okay. And it's I mean, like even like our group chat there's you know times where we talk about this kind of stuff and it's mm-hmm. it's because we don't feel like we're providing a voice to the voiceless i hate that phrase yeah, yeah. It's stupid <laughs> but we're not doing that but we are trying to help spark a conversation 
mm-hmm. people need to be having about stories like yours. Yes. Um, yeah. And there's, I mean, there's so many different episodes we have that are so different. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's the part that's really important to me is everybody's stuff is so different. What ends up happening is when you turn on, you know, Dateline or 2020 or whatever, they just have this one singular type of story, mm-hmm. your lifetime yeah. movies, your whatever. It's always this one singular type of movie or this singular type of story. Mm-hmm. And when you go through our episodes, every single episode is real different. Mm-hmm. which nice. is speaking of how large this problem is of black people yeah. going missing, whether it's trafficking, whether it's kidnap, whether it's um, femicide, they're all so different and they all matter very, very much. And I am just so grateful for you reaching out. I'm so glad that you, you decided to do this with us. And I mean, if you're game to talk again, like <laughs> we are open. And I know uh, going back to one question that you guys had on yeah. advice I would give. Um, if your child is missing, check every jail in the country because they have probably been in and out of jail. Mm. That is yeah, actually that, really good. And they're probably in an adult jail, not a, mm-hmm. not a juvie, because if they were in a juvenile detention center, they probably would have contacted the parents. Right. But if you can't find your child, check. Don't just stay at the jail houses that are local to you. Mm-hmm. Do your research, find out where a lot of women are trafficked, places like Miami. Um, I think California is a big one. Vegas is a big one. Um, check jails in those areas. Thank Good you to know. That. Yes. Yeah. We're going to put all of this in our show notes also with some mm-hmm. links, some links to how people can find you, um, your GoFundMe, your email address, your music, things like that. And then also some of the resources that you mentioned where they can just click the link and and see where it is and save it on their phones or, or in their, um, in their um, little passbooks or whatever on their (laughs) like MacBooks. Um, But thank you again so much for spending time with us and for chit chatting. And I know like, It's it's rough, so I want you to like go get some rest <laughs> yes. or whatever whatever Self-care you do to relax of some some nature. Yeah, whatever you do to relax, I want you to go do that. Yes, <laughs> I have my road dog Da Vinci here with me. So I have yes. that. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's time for some puppy snugs. Yes, <laughs> but thank you, thank you so, much so much for this. Absolutely, and have a wonderful weekend. Mm-hmm. And we hopefully will speak to you again very soon. Absolutely. I'm I'm always available to speak. I, like I said, we are on the same mission. Um, So anything that I can do to be helpful with my story, I am down. Thank you. Thank you so much. And have have a wonderful night. Thank Mm -hmm. you. All right. All right. Thank you for joining us for this special episode of Black Girl Missing. We appreciate all of your support and all of your listens. Please join us next week for a new show. Black Girl Missing Podcast is researched, written, and produced by three concerned black women who want justice for missing black girls. Today's episode was written by Asa Todd, produced by Nikki Irene, and the Black Girl Missing theme was produced by Siraj Khalif. Be sure to follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are BLK Girl Missing. On Facebook, we're at Black Girl Missing Pod. 
On Instagram, we are at Black Girl Missing Podcast. Visit our website for more information about each case, blackgirlmissingpod.com. Contact us on social media or email us at blackgirlmissingpodcast at gmail.com with any tips, feedback, or names of girls you want us to look into. You can support Black Girl Missing by subscribing to our Patreon, where you will receive exclusive behind-the-scenes content and bonus episodes. Go to patreon.com slash blackgirlmissingpodcast and subscribe today. We really appreciate the support.